name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Steep are the seas, and savaging and cold, and broken waters terrible to try, and vast against the winter night the void, the, the wold, and harbourless for any sail to lie. But you shall lead me to the lights, and I shall hymn you in a harbour story told. This is the faith that I have held and hold, and this is that in which I mean to die. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, talking to you from Westport, County Mayo. And if you've, if you've just joined us, you're most welcome to this, our sixth episode of The Brendan Option. And perhaps you might join me just in the shortest prayer as, as we begin uh, to just reflect on the current, the current situation of the believer in the world today. Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, hail our life, our sweetness and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us. And after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. It's great to be with you again. A uh, little bit of bad news just to start with. My, my colleague, uh, friend, um, former student, Father Gerard Quirk, curate here in Westport, isn't with us and won't be with us for a few weeks. Uh, Gerard, um, who's a, a, a keen amateur athlete in his spare time, was, was out cycling and, as young men do, far too fast, probably. And uh, took quite a bad tumble from the bike. So nothing life-threatening, but he has had quite considerable pain and discomfort and you might remember him just maybe just a, a little prayer for him not easy for a young person to have to put up with the uh, the tedium of convalescence and, and all of that so just to keep him in mind I began some of you might might, might have recognized the quotation at the beginning it's from um, the the Vesuvial the the cantankerous the irascible Hilaire Belloc one of the great English Catholic converts of the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries, a uh, contemporary of Chesterton, H.G. Wells. Well, Wells certainly was no convert. All of these people. Uh, War came later, of course. Uh, Belloc, um, Belloc had a French mother, I think. He was very, very cosmopolitan. But the quotation was from his Ballade to Our Lady of Chestakova. Belloc was a very keen sailor, and it's got the most wonderful image of the storm and the the desperate uh, sailor trying to make the harbour, trying to get to the harbour. And, and he has this tremendous tribute to Our Lady in the next verse, which I didn't read from you, where he says, help of the half-defeated. That's what he calls her, the help of the half-defeated. And so the church continually sinking for 2,000 years. Really, the whole thing went to pot about 60 minutes after the ascension of our Lord hasn't stopped going downhill since and here we are in the middle of the sea of liquid modernity that we've discussed so often in the last five episodes and I, I suppose continuing this image of the sea I just can't get out of my mind the tr that tremendous work of Melville that great work of American literature Moby Dick I don't know if you're familiar with it. You know, I, I, I was saying in the Brendan option that we really need to gird our loins, so to speak. We need to be laying in stores. We need to be improving our, our seagoing skills for this, 
this journey. A ship may be the closest thing that we can find to something solid on the water. In this flood, this cultural flood that we're, that we're existing in now. And I'm reminded of the famous quotation from Starbuck, I think he was the first mate uh, on the Pequod in Moby Dick, which was a whaler. Uh, Moby Dick is set on a 19th century whaler, operating, I think, as a lot of them did out of Nantucket. And Starbuck, forethought Starbuck, I am here in this critical ocean to kill whales for my living and not to be killed by them for theirs. Now, you, you're going to have to make a decision. You remember in the past, I was, I was calling, I was begging, I was pleading, I was crawling on the ground and, and, and rolling in the muck and thorns and nettles and howling at the moon for decisions. Will, for goodness sake, will people make decisions? It is mankind, womankind, humankind, peoplekind at its most dignified, making rational, considered decisions. What do you want? Do you want to continue clinging to your bitter wreckage? Do you want to drown? Uh, Leopardi, the, the Italian poet, um, talked about the superhuman silences. And he said, uh, and in those vast silences of space that he was imagining, it would be so sweet to be shipwrecked. In other words, the best he hoped for was that beautiful final moment, and after that, the darkness. Is, the, is that where you are philosophically, theologically? If it is, for goodness sake, name it, and then we can start. Then, and then, as, as they say down this side of the country, we're sucking diesel. Okay? Then we're dealing with reality. Then we are dealing, and reality is something we need to talk about. I mentioned that it's based in the Latin word, the, the root of it is the Latin word race, meaning thing. Reality is thinginess. It is, the, it is the, that which is touchable, tasteable, that can be experienced. And here's more. Uh, experience comes from the Latin word expedire, from which we get the word experiment, which means to try. So reality is, is, is something that is there to be tried. It is there to be essayed. It is there to be attempted. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Make a decision, even if it's a bad decision, even if it's the wrong decision. For goodness sake, if you don't leave the harbour, what will you be? Is there anything more pathetic than a ship in dry dock forever? Old mouldering tubs sitting there on the side of beaches. No, no, you're built for that ocean. As Starbucks says in that beautiful phrase, for that critical ocean. That ocean which demands decisions. That ocean in which the price is so high for mistakes. You're made for it. You're equipped for it. Make decisions. And here you are on this sea. And yes, it's, it's dangerous. And as Jordan Peterson keeps reminding us, we become habituated through routine to how thin the ice is under our feet. And below in the water are things that eat you. Below are real terrors. And so life is not to be underestimated. I don't blame you for being afraid. I don't blame you for cowering in the harbour. We've all done it. So long as you eventually slouch out and make some sort of a start. So in this critical ocean, what is solid? What is assured? So I just mentioned it the last day and in my way then promptly circled around it about a thousand times like one of those spirals on the stones at Newgrange. But here I come back to it again. I want to talk about, in fact, 
I want to be obsessed with. I am obsessed with. I see these episodes as the working out of a quite proper and right obsession with faith. So I'm Captain Ahab and so are you. I'm the fanatical nutter who's obsessed with catching the great white whale. And I will risk life and limb and money and fortune and everything I have for this. And really, there is nothing else proper to a man or a woman but that you be willing to put everything on the horse. You choose the horse. You study the form. I'm not asking you to be a fool. Look at the scriptures. They don't encourage foolishness, but they do laud courage and above all courage informed by faith. So what is this faith? Because we're, we're always talking about this. Keep the faith. Oh, he has great faith. He's a person, she's a person of faith. Oh, the, the old people had great faith. Uh, well, what is this faith that we're always going on about? Because language, as you know, is, it can be so treacherous. What is this? What is this all about? Let's start with Aquinas. Now, I like Aquinas, not because I'm so brainy, I'm not. I like Aquinas because he was a great big stout man, according to legend, and I, I, I like fat sense. I always do. I like it. No, I, I like a tubby saint. I like a saint who looks like he enjoys his grub. Or horror, okay? I've always, I've always imagined Teresa of Avila as well as Pudgy. I like somebody who, who looks like they can sit into a good dinner and really enjoy it. And by all accounts, Aquinas could. And Aquinas, of course, has this brilliant mind and he defines it. And I'm starting with it because Aquinas is, you know, it's dry, but it's very intellectual, and we are the most intellectual of the religions. Aquinas defines faith as the act of the intellect when it assents to divine truth under the influence of the will moved by God through grace. He wasn't a put. Okay, that's accepted. You know how I I love to play tough and to play cool and and to pretend I know the sense on a personal level. I like to call him Big Tom. Big Tom was no put, okay? He was no country and western singer in this case either. This is a philosopher who distills wisdom, okay? This is a razor-sharp mind. The act of the intellect, when it assents to divine truth under the influence of the will, moved by God through grace. There's quite a bit going on there. Now, you get a splitting headache if you try to go at that all together. So we're not going to. Instead of that, we're going to leave it there. Because there's no substituting. This is a part of our Catholic heritage. By the time our Lord appeared, the Jews were already heavily Hellenized. Now, there's a big debate as to how far that had gone, but it had been going on for about 200 years before he appeared, which was very much to be expected. And that Hellenization, that infusion of Greek culture, Greek philosophy, the whole thing, which spread because the Romans fostered it and, and the Koine, which was an international form of Greek, was the language of the Roman Empire for hundreds of years. Th- that culture was absolutely crucial to the intellectual development of the faith in its early stages. So it was really providential. So there's no getting away from that. So I want to acknowledge that. I want to bow to it. The act of the intellect, when it's sense to divine truth, under the influence of the will, moved by God through grace. But I want... I want to do what Aquinas would certainly have approved of my doing because he regarded himself, he's an interesting one for you, 
he regarded himself as primarily a commentator on the scriptures. Did you know that? No, that's what he was proudest of. He saw himself as primarily a commentator on the scriptures. Although he's thought of as a philosopher and a theologian, but actually he would have seen himself first and foremost as a commentator. So we go back to the scriptures and we ask, because we are all spiritual Semites, as Pius XI reminded us, on the eve of the horror that was to unfold, which had, which had been foreseen, if I'm not mistaken, by St. Faustina Kowalska, the horror that was to unfold in Europe. We are spiritual Semites. We are Jews. We are spiritual Jews. I, I know some of the Orthodox Jews will get upset with me for saying that. They say, no, we're Jews in any way. You always treated us like so badly and you were so mean to us. We did treat you badly and we did treat you meanly and we are Jews. Christianity is a massive Jewish family row. <laughs> because in Jesus Christ, the whole world became Jews, in a sense. The whole world that wanted to had the option of becoming chosen, of being elected. And so what do the Jews mean by faith? This is crucial because this is the matrix we come from. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a Jew. He is still a Jew. Our Lady is a Jew. We need to be crystal clear on this. What did the Jews mean by faith? That would be interesting. And then we'll work our way, we'll work our way back to Big Tom, eventually. Okay, and indeed he'll be with us. He'll be with us. I watched recently a TED Talk. Very good. And it's a real art, no more than an essay or a short story. There are literary genres that are notoriously difficult. It's like polishing gems. It's like polishing diamonds, like being a diamond merchant. It's a, a real tr master skill. She was giving a talk, Baroness O'Neill, the moral philosopher. I knew her mother because they used to take holidays out our way. I think she was a Cambridge philosopher. And she was excellent. And she just spoke for 10 minutes on trust. And she made the most commonsensical point. But I suppose if you make it in an educated English accent, it, it, it always sounds so much better. <laughs> she made the most commonsensical point about trust. She said, everyone is always complaining nowadays, whether in the university or in the pub or wherever, that there's no trust in modern life. But she said, that is an absolutely meaningless statement because trust is a response to trustworthiness or perceived trustworthiness. She said, there is no point in lamenting the fact that nobody trusts anyone. Maybe we should all be trying to be more trustworthy and then there would be more trust. Because she pointed out the human beings do still trust if they are given reason for it. They may be cynical about the great big world, but trust a postman in whom they have great faith because they have found him reliable. So there's no point banging on about trust unless you are trustworthy. Now in Hebrew, to have faith, hemin, from which we get the word amen, and here I'm depending on the Protestant scripture scholar, the excellent scripture scholar, Gerhard von Rad. To have faith is to be secure in Yahweh. I know some people don't like you taking the name, or as the Orthodox rabbis say, Hashem, the name. They, they refer to God as the name. Yahweh is only a guess anyway. Nobody knows how those consonants were pronounced. Hebrew at that time had no vowel sounds. To be secure in Yahweh. To have faith meant to be secure. It meant to have something, as it were, under your feet. 
to have a sense of assurance, a sense that the matter was in hand. The Italians, who were masters of gesture, uh, as well as masters of so much else, they would move the hand with the fingers splayed a little horizontally, back and forward like this. And it meant that something had been arranged. <laughs> you know, they'd be saying, cool down, calm down, calma, calma. Something's been arranged. <laughs> Faith for the Jews is the sense that the matter is in hand. Trust is placed in he who has shown himself trustworthy, in he who does not break his word. That's absolutely crucial. So it's not simply intellectual. And as one commentator has put it, it involves an engagement of the entire psyche. Because trust is intellectual. I mean, you don't have to be an intellectual. You don't have to be academic. If you've been cheated once, that'll generally be enough to temper your trust in that person. Whereas if you've never been cheated by that person, your trust increases. There is an element of calculation and reflection and the whole thing. So it is intellectual, as well as everything else. And the church is right to emphasize it. But Aquinas doesn't mention, because even though he was big and cuddly, okay, he's not touchy-feely. Aquinas doesn't, he doesn't mention the emotions. Trust is emotive too. There is an affection in it. There is, there is an engagement, an emotional engagement with the other in it. Because, of course, in this dangerous world, on this critical ocean, where a whale that you're trying to kill may decide to kill you. Trust is crucial. It is critical. One of the things I noticed as a teacher, I taught uh, mostly teenage boys. In their conversation, or if you were talking to them just about their lives, they would often talk about trust. They would often talk about people in terms of whether you could rely on them, whether they'd let you down, whether they'd shaft you, whether they'd stab you in the back. Like old age, and certain points in life, it, it is one of those times where everything's up for grabs, where certainties are eroded, certainties of childhood are being eroded, those of adulthood have not yet quite arrived. And so, in this critical ocean, the issue of trust is crucial. Faith has at its core trust, assurance. My ecclesiastical office, my job, my work is to be parish priest of Athenry, County Galway. And Athenry is a medieval town, it's a Norman town. And Athenry, the old part of Athenry, is laid out on the same street plan as the medieval town. Those few streets are, are narrow. There are a lot of medieval ruins. There are considerable remains of the old town wall. One of the gates is still there. King John's castle, the keep, is still intact. There's quite a bit to remind you of all this. But one of the most interesting things about Athenry is the market cross. In the square, which isn't a square, <laughs> but then we're in Westport where the square is an octagon. <laughs> in the square of Athenry is a medieval market cross, the original market cross. Now the Cromwellians wrecked it, so the shaft disappeared. But the base and the carved head are still there. And because Athenry was well off, and because it was an English town originally, Anglo-Norman town, Athenry didn't have a Celtic cross. 
it had a lantern cross of the kind that were becoming very fashionable and popular on the continent and in England. So it was like a cross with a carved top, but not the circle and the cross. And so there's a crucifixion scene at the top, although carved in the Gaelic style, or what might be called one of the Gaelic styles. And that cross is still there. It's a very interesting thing to see. And even originally, the top of it could probably be taken out of the shaft, and they think they would put it into a cart, and they would take it to wherever there was a market around the town, if the market was out on the green instead of in the square. Because you made your bargain in front of the cross, and a bargain made before the market cross, which is what a market cross is for, a bargain had legal, it had juridic significance. When I was a boy, I remember at the old fairs before the marts came in, where the cattle were sold on the streets in Lewisburg, I remember the farmers making a deal, and it was high theatre. One would look reluctant, the other would press his price, the other would still look reluctant to sell. Sometimes a third man would step in and hold both their hands to try to make their hands meet. So the deal would be sealed. Sometimes men would gather around making comments or offering advice on the price being offered. Each party spat on his hand, it's a very ancient gesture, and they slapped their hands together like a high five given horizontally. Now, all right, it wasn't COVID-19 friendly. You couldn't be at that now. If we were still conducting our business in that manner nowadays, commercial life would be closed down for even longer than it has been. And as far as I know, I'm open to correction, a judge would take that into account if witnesses told him that they had seen the spit and the slap, in that at least a legitimate expectation had been created. Now these are the sacramentals. Remember that a sacrament was a term from Roman law. These are the sacramentals, these are the signs, and to an extent the means, by which an effect is made in the law. I am asking you to consider a bargain. On my right is a figure, we won't even say who this man is, but this is Hashem, the name. Or as Einstein called him, the old one, or the mystery. And on the left is you, and you're trying to strike a bargain. Will you trust him or won't you? Now, this is what faith comes down to. And you say, no, 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 you have to have an intellectual concept of them first. That's fair enough, but that's not the only thing operating. Will you trust him? You can have an intellectual concept of somebody as long as the day is, and still nothing happens. Will you trust him? And in a sense, trust in God is a statement about his existence. Do you see how complicated this gets? So it's not that the Jewish concept isn't complicated. It's just that the Jews were matter-of-fact. People are immensely complicated. But as Jewish law and Roman law and Greek law and our law, common law knows, people simply have to get on with their business. The law can't sort all that out. Sooner or later you have to make a decision. You have to spit on your hand. For goodness sake, could we have a decision? Okay, you can regret it tomorrow. But we need to move this on or you'll, have, you'll go back home with your cattle. Having driven them all the way here, which used to happen, and it was heartbreaking to see a poor farmer having to drive his cattle home. Five miles maybe, on foot, having failed to get a price at which he could feed his family for the cattle. So, 
What's going to happen here? Will, will, will there be a deal? That is faith. And if, and if you're too grand to accept that smelly, chaotic souk, that bazaar, that marketplace quality that is faith, you're too posh for this game. You, you should found your own church. Start your own outfit. You should start a, a London club. You know, your outfit should have leather armchairs and it's, 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 the, it's the church for nice people. It's the church for people who don't like smelly things. This is the Catholic Church. As Joyce is supposed to have said, apparently he didn't say it, he should have said it. Here comes everybody. That's Catholicism. Here comes everybody. This is a stampede. This is chaotic. This is one endless quarrel. This is the church. Here is where you meet him. Here in this marketplace. Here in the souk. Here in the bazaar. If God does not see fit to give you the gift of faith, you could still get to heaven. He, he has... I'm, I'm, I'm going to come to something now where you can see that so clearly in the scriptures. He has his own way and in fairness, he is hard on us at times. He's, he's as Teresa of Avila is supposed to have shouted at him, it's no wonder he's so few friends with the way he treats the few he has. And everyone else sees the way they're treated. <laughs> God, some people have a hard road. Maybe he hides himself. Maybe he hides himself indefinitely. I don't know. But where you will be judged was where you, would, you wouldn't. We piped and you wouldn't dance. You wouldn't come to the marketplace and the fair was on. You wouldn't even look at the stalls. You sat at home and complained that there was nothing to buy. That wasn't true. The world talks of God. Now I can prove empirically in a science lab let's say I'm talking to an atheist, that you're right and the world is simply misguided and is simply rehearsing its hopes and its fear of death. I can't prove that. But for thousands of years, humanity has been itching at this scab. It hasn't come from nowhere. Our sense of war to be had, our sense of the possibility of harbour, of survival, of getting off this. And remember, like religion, like sex and politics, and all the great things of life, and food, they are all about life. They are all about survival. And the very root of the word survival, survivre, is to live, is to come out of something. Will you come to the marketplace? Will you consider making a bargain? Will you consider putting money on this horse? Will you consider spitting on your hand and striking a deal with them before the market cross? Now, if you go to the letter to the Hebrews, you know, we don't say St. Paul wrote Hebrews. There's a good chance he didn't write Hebrews. The church doesn't insist on it either way. There was a debate for a lot of the history of the church, but it's very Pauline in many ways, even though the style of writing is, is different. And... But if you go into the letter to the Hebrews, which is a hugely important part of the New Testament, and not the less so for being anonymous, okay? So if it were by Paul, it was the only one he, did, the only one he didn't sign, as it were. You know, the only one that doesn't begin with Paul, you know, from Paul. Go into Hebrews and go into Hebrews 11. And there you find that this New Testament cannot shut up about this so-called Old Testament. You want to drive a Jewish person correct, call it the Old Testament. <laughs> Those are my scriptures you're calling old. The scriptures were never out of his mouth. His, capital H. His. We won't even name them at this point. They were never out of his mouth. He died quoting them. 
And Hebrews is going on about Abraham. Now we're taking Brendan as our patron here because of the journey and everything else. I think, as the Americans say, I think Abraham ranks Brendan. <laughs> okay. Abraham's a serious dude. Even from an anthropological point of view, father of three great religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. From an anthropological point of view, okay. We speak here from a faith point of view, and I believe that the entirety of the truth subsists in Christianity, which is Judaism plus Jesus Christ, <laughs> extended to the whole world, exactly as was promised to Abraham. And so the New Testament goes on about the Old Testament, and we're looking to make a bargain, and who better to start looking at than Abraham? If you're going to talk about faith, as the author of Hebrews acknowledges in that chapter 11, if you're going to start talking about faith, you end up having to talk about Abraham. The great thing about Abraham is that Abraham had made his home not in God, although it was in God. Abraham made his home. He found security. He found his fortress, his castle. He found his ship, his ark, in God's promise. It was in the promise. It was in the future. And faith in the Old Testament is always linked to the future. Abraham is a businessman. God cut him an excellent deal. Now I'm being childish. I'm being crude in terms of the way I'm using ideas, in terms of the way I'm breaking them down. But I really do think that if the, the, the more fastidious believers will just tolerate me at this for a while, I really do think there's a lot to be said for this constant rumination, this mastication of the truths of the faith. Trying to put them in our own language, trying to again and again and again understand what's meant by this. Because this concept of faith is incredible. Faith is a cathedral. Faith is a marketplace. Faith is the agora, the Greek marketplace. Faith is the forum. Faith is, faith is where you meet everybody. Faith is where you meet him. Faith is where the deal is made. It's not something static. It's dynamic. And it's two-way. It's God's love, God's reaching out, God's plan of salvation, God's call, and your response and it involves your whole being. That's why I have continual sympathy for, even though it wouldn't be my first port call in terms of spiritualities, but for the charismatic renewal in the church, in spite of the fact that I know of charismatic congregations that did a runner and left the Catholic Church, probably through lack of spiritual direction, I would say, and good catechesis. But that sense that one can lose so easily, that faith should inform the whole person. There should be a joy. Not all the time, maybe, but there should be a joy. There should be some peace eventually. This is on offer. If, if you are willing to take the bargain, this is on offer. Abraham has pitched his tent in the promise. And that is our ark. And for the author of Hebrews, and for us, 2,000 years later, the promise has taken human form. The promise is Jesus Christ. God made man. 
Abraham has pitched his tent in the promise. That turning back to the scriptures, turn back to the New Testament, fair enough, start there. Realize the New Testament can't stop going on about this Old Testament. Go back to the Old Testament. Go right back. Go back to Genesis. Fine, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, fine, all that. That's very important. But look at Abraham. He's of huge importance. Now here I'm going to say something to you. And some people aren't going to like this, but... I'm going to say it straight. The crisis of our time is a crisis of faith. You can talk to me until you're blue in the face about the lack of vocations. You can forget that. Never mind talking about lack of vocations. We're way past that. We have a lack of faith. That's why we have no vocations, or very few. It's because we have a lack of faith. You say to me, oh, well, if, if, if only priests should be married. Priests should be married if God intended us to be married. It's the wisdom of the church that we should not marry. And when faith has been strong, large numbers of people, of men, struck that bargain with God. And were more than happy to. Some of the brightest and best of their generations. Look at the brilliance of the people who surrounded Ignatius Loyola. While he still was alive, some of the brilliant men who were attracted to, to follow God in his company. The great people who were risen up in the Franciscan family, in the Franciscan tradition. Fantastic people. Teresa of Avila, Teresa of Lisieux, Edith Stein, all these people who have struck a bargain with God, which involved above and beyond again, because the Christian vocation is not an easy one, a bet, a risk on God's word, leaving themselves with nothing humanly. It is a crisis of faith. I'll take this a little bit further, because there's nothing again, you know, we're spiritual Jews, there's nothing like being concrete. I don't think priests would need unions if we had more faith, and effectively, when we talk about, how will I put this delicately, certain organizations that will represent priests, you're talking about a union, aren't you? Isn't that basically what you're talking about? I put my two hands between the bishop's hands and I swore obedience to him and to his successors. And I do not recall adding a whole load of small print to that. The understanding was it was in the context of the faith and the law of the church. There you have it. And that's understood. It was in the context of the sacred liturgy and the handing on of the, of the sacrament of holy order. If we had faith, I don't think that you would have people needing to move in with each other at a young age because they're terrified of wasting their physically best years. And that's a real fear. It's a fear of death. It's present even in young people. These are my best looking years and if I don't enjoy somebody at this age and let them enjoy me, it's a waste. You see, if you have faith, you take the best and you throw it on the altar and you set fire to it. That's what you do with the best. You don't sacrifice rubbish. It's a lack of faith. Now, if God wills that people marry, then they should marry. And if he wills that they shouldn't, then they shouldn't. St. Paul, if you remember, is quite cut and dried, but quite matter-of-fact about the whole thing, because, of course, he expected that the end might come quite soon. The early church did, you know. And uh, he was saying, oh, yeah, marry if you want, but uh, I don't know, do you need the hassle, like? 
I mean, we don't have much time here, but look, if it's going to cause trouble for you, if you can't handle abstinence, the rest of it, you just get on with it. He's very down to earth about it. The crucial question here is faith. The question isn't whether priests should marry. The question is what God wants. And fair enough, you can debate that at a theological level. You, you don't do this to people if God isn't asking it. But if he is, it must be done. Now people would say, oh, God would never ask that. No. Tell that to Isaac. If we had faith, a lot of this would come clear. The problem is that we don't have faith. If we collectively, the church has faith, but if we, the, the church exists also in history, in space and time, and specific people serve and lead the church at specific times. And I would say there's a crisis of faith among us priests. This is going to be really controversial. Wow, I feel so dangerous. I feel so bad. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a lean, mean, controversial machine. <laughs> if we had faith, we'd probably have got out of the schools which is terrifying. You know, I worked in Catholic education, it's terrifying, but it's, I, I'm, not, I'm not judging anyone, okay? I'm not downing anyone. It's just good people everywhere, I'm just saying it's a mess. Okay, you can have good people everywhere, and you still have a mess. And it's all the more of a mess because it's tidy and neat and professional, and it's all being done according to the department's guidelines, and the department isn't Catholic. The department isn't even Christian. And the department's full of good people, and God bless them and keep them and give them bed among the roses. We won't push off into open sea. We have this magnificent vessel and we won't sail in it. We won't go because out there is all sorts of dangers and storms. Remember Belloc's poem at the beginning? All the storms and calling on Our Lady to guide him into the harbour and I'll, I'll, sing, I'll tell stories about you in the pubs in the harbour. No, no, this, it's much more frightening. Out there is God. And we're afraid of God. And I'm afraid of God. I think it's that film, The Usual Suspects, where one of the villains says, I don't believe in God, but I'm afraid of him. I do believe in God and I'm afraid of him. That's all we're afraid of. I don't think we're afraid of the devil. If we had faith, we'd face him down. You might be afraid of, you know what I mean. You might be, only an idiot isn't afraid in those circumstances. But I mean, you'd face him down. You'd have the guts to face him. You would, you'd face him down. You'd face him down. I mean, I'm afraid of heights. But if someone I love was, I don't know, stuck up in a tree or something, I'd be up that tree like a shot. Nature would propel you. We've lost our faith. And, and you see, the thing of it is, the loss of faith really is, is quite complex because faith soaks into your bones. It's in, you, it's in your blood. It's in your antibodies. It's in your marrow. It's... It, it's, it's everywhere in you. It's, you're infested with it. You're, it's, it's gone right through you. So you don't lose it easily. Cormac McCarthy, the American novelist, has a Mexican character in one of his novels musing on this. And he said, people are always saying, oh, I've, I've lost my faith. But he, he said, you know, it's very hard for a man to abandon the sense that something is watching him. He said, he said it's not as easy to do that as you think. It's not as easy to lose your faith as atheists think, but it's not as easy to have faith as believers think. 
Pius the Ninth. It's not fashionable to call Pius the Ninth now because he, he was tough. But apparently he was a lovely man. He was, he was small and cuddly. He was apparently, oh, he's a really charming guy. But that's the Italians for you. The Italians are, are it's so civilized. They're such diplomats. They're so charming. You know, John Paul II, like he was tough pole, like you know, he just grunted. He was very charismatic, like. But he didn't, he didn't flatter you, like. The Italians just had that tremendous. They had a tremendous way with them. And Pius IX was a tough pope. Now, he had a very tough job and he was living in very tough times. But he met an English tourist once and he was, you know, the man who was such an influence on a lot of people. I think as well on you, man, at Oxford, at Pusey, Dr. Pusey. And uh, a lot of his pupils went on to become full Catholics, to, become, to go over to Rome, as they used to say. Lesser known but very famous in his day, Henry Manning the Archbishop of Westminster and a great friend of the Irish, leading Anglican clergyman before he became... Well, in fairness, Newman was famous enough before he, he converted as well. But Pusey was a huge influence on a lot of people. And Pusey didn't become a Catholic, he stayed an Anglican. And Pius IX, uh, he said to this visitor, he said, Do you know Pusey? The lady, I think it was a lady, she said, Oh, I know him well, Your Holiness. Tell him, he said, when you meet him, that I compare him to a bell which calls everyone into church. And I'm sure Pusey enjoyed it, <laughs> because it, it was witty and warm. It was a dig, but it, it was given with great, with great kindness and humanity. We do a lot of that, and there are a lot of us priests at that. And that's why I, I'm always dreading I'd be called to an exorcism, because the, the evil spirit will, will... I mean, they just beat me around the place. <laughs> he, won't, he won't even have to put down his dinner like... <laughs> You know, he just, he just give me a quick walloping while he's having a sandwich. Because we do believe, and yet we don't. Does that make sense? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The Irish bishops at Vatican II specifically asked that they be allowed to retain at the mystery of faith, it's for Ireland only, you can see it in the missal, to be allowed to say, my Lord and my God, at the mystery of faith. I love that. I always say it, even the parishioners get sick of it. They're always saying, why, the others are much nicer, why can't you say those? But You see, we cut back, we compromise, we fiddle, we clip the coin. Do you remember Kierkegaard in the last talk? We clip the coin, we, we hustle, we, as Pierce, Patrick Pierce said, we bargain and huckster with God. But hold on a second now. Maybe Pierce was being too hard. You know, Michael Collins said that if he had to follow anyone, he'd follow James Connolly, because he said, that Philip Pierce would get you killed. <laughs> Connolly was very practical. He was revolutionary and a patriot, but he was very practical. Hold on a second. Maybe, again, we're being a bit too fancy about this. Bargain and huckster with God. Let's go back. Because what do we find Abraham at? Over Sodom. He bargains and hucksters with God. It's when the exegetes will tell you that it's classic ancient Near Eastern haggling that you can still find. You could find it in the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. You could find it anywhere. Find it in any souk. You start at the high price and you walk down. And, and God is going to destroy Sodom and Abraham goes, oh, let's say there were a few hundred just people, would you not spare it? And God said, oh, well, yeah, yeah, okay. So there were a few hundred just people. And it's much derided, often by non-believers. But in fact, there are tremendous truths being taught through that symbolic, that kind of sacramental haggling, is that it's a spirituality, it's a theology in which the human being is taking up residence in God and actually has the impertinence to nag and ask and wheedle and beg and bargain. There are tremendous strengths in it. Please don't be precious about this. This is too crucial. 
The life of faith is difficult, of course it's difficult. The life of faith is, is, is difficult and as Belloc says, steep are the seas and savaging and cold and broken waters terrible to try and vast against the winter night the wold and harbourless for any sail to lie. It's terrifying out there because it's him and we are going to sail on God. We are going to travel into God and you'll meet anything and everything on that journey. And so this episode in my roundabout way is a call to arms. Stop making excuses. Name it. Make a decision. Admit the truth. I don't care if you're a priest or a bishop. Admit the truth. That you're a messy, slobbery believer. That you believe that you don't believe. That you might believe that you ought to believe. You should believe. You once did believe. All at the same time. And if you have the humility to admit the marketplace, the soup, the bazaar that's going on in your own soul, then you'll put away your preciousness and your grandness and you'll step into the marketplace, which is God's covenant, in which you meet God. And it is absolutely essential to do that. There is no room for the kind of snobbery in Christianity that, oh, my relationship. You know what they say about recovering from alcoholism or drug addiction? You know, they say one of the great dangers is that you beat the, the drink or the drugs and then you become addicted to your own recovery. And suddenly the whole world is centred around your recovery. With the result that the people you instrumentalised before are now being instrumentalised and abused all over again around you, but in a far more acceptable way. Do you remember we were saying before how tricky the path of faith is and how refined and clever the temptations become? The human psyche is no joke. I mean, I said it's terrifying to sail into God. Terrifying to sail the other way into ourselves. <laughs> Be willing to get your hands dirty. I came across a book by Megan Kaiser, Everywhere for Nothing, Free Travel for the Modern Nomad. God calls on Abraham, leave your own country and your father's house. Abandon the familiar and come into me. Go to a country where you are not known, as it were. Travel into God. Now you are known by God, but you don't know that. It takes ages for you to internalise and accept the fact that he knows you. And that he loves you. Make your home in God. Hemin, make your home in God. Have your assurance in Hashem, in the name, in Yahweh, in him, in the mystery, in the old one. Make your home in God. Come into the marketplace and make your home in God. I cannot commend to you as I end too strongly. If you are going to do this, if you are going to make the journey, whether you shipwreck or end up on the rocks or end up being stranded or go the wrong direction or end up in the doldrums or whatever it is, I cannot recommend to you too strongly as you contemplate all of these adventures that you put yourself under the protection of Our Lady. And Belloc is dead right when he continues in the, in the, the third verse of that ballad to Our Lady of Chestakova and he gives her that magnificent tribute, help of the half-defeated. House of gold, shrine of the sword and tower of ivory, splendour apart, supreme and aureoled, the battler's vision and the world's reply. You shall restore me, O my last ally, to vengeance and the glories of the bold. This is the faith that I have held and hold, and this is that in which I mean to die. St. Brendan, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 
KECEPATAN